I'm turning this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 and verse 19. I shall read verses 19 and 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And our title is Christ Commissions His Own. Well, we have concluded our series of studies in Mark's Gospel, and I felt that to augment the very end of Mark's Gospel that we considered, it uh, would be good to come to this concluding part of Matthew's Gospel to see Matthew's account of the Great Commission. Whether it is exactly the same occasion, this giving of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel, as that at the end of Mark's Gospel is not totally clear. Many think that it is, and many think that it is the same commission given by the risen Lord on two separate occasions, one in the open air in a mountain and the other possibly in an enclosed place while they sat at meat. Uh, Possibly it's the same event, but we can't be clear on that. However, the commission is the same, slightly differently expressed, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, Matthew's account provides the great promise. In the end of verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And that's what I'd particularly like to come to. But we consider the whole of verse 19. And first of all, I want to think about all power. Go ye therefore, Go, we've considered, as we looked at the commission in Mark, this therefore, go ye therefore. Why is it there? Well, it refers back to verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, these are the significant words, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. In the light of that, Therefore, because all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, therefore go ye and teach all nations, and then the promise, lo, I am with you always. So we begin with the thought of all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, and several things that we derive from that. First of all, clearly, It's an affirmation of the divinity of Christ, our Lord and Saviour. All power is given unto me. So he declares as the resurrected Lord that he has the power of the Godhead, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. All power is given unto me. It is, don't you see, a statement of divinity. But secondly... 
It's a statement that makes it clear that his period of submission to the Father, voluntary submission to the Father, is over. He's returned to the state that he enjoyed before, total oneness with the Father and free exercise of divine power. For a season, he suffered humiliation. He lowered himself. He came into this world. He laid aside so much of his glory and his power. He never ceased to be God. He became man too, the God-man, never ceasing to be divine, but laying aside the exercise and the full experience of his heavenly glory. And he submitted to the law to live a perfect life as a man, to be our worthy representative so that he could earn heaven for us by his righteousness. And he lived under fierce and terrible provocation from the devil and his hosts, but perfectly he lived, earning heaven for his people. And then the perfect act of obedience, suffering and dying on Calvary's cross to bear personally the punishment, the eternal punishment due to us for our sins. By his life of perfection, he deserved heaven for us, for his suffering and death. He cancelled and did away with the punishment of sin for sin that was due to us. But now his period of subjection to the law, subjection to be obedient to his father's will is over. No longer is he our representative and scapegoat and sin bearer on earth. So he's able to say, all power is given unto me. And he goes back to his heavenly glory. And of course, it's an indication of his special responsibility for matters on earth. All power is given unto me in heaven, equal with the Father, and in earth. To the Son of God, to the eternal second person of the Godhead, is given the lordship and responsibility of earth, the redeemed, the saving of the lost, the gathering in of his people, and the controlling of all forces against them, the limiting of all hostility against them, bringing them safely to the point where all are gathered in and prepared for eternity. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. It's a towering word of assurance to the disciples, still somewhat frightened, some of them still hardly able to take in that he has risen from the dead, that he is divine, that he has re returned from the grave. But he has, and they can see it. And then the commission itself in verse 19, go you therefore and teach all nations. I want to give a word, say a word about teach. Uh, the translation could be better, 
because literally the Greek is make disciples. And it's somewhat um, uh, terse to say teach. Go ye therefore and make disciples. By using the word teach there, our King James translators, it's not totally inaccurate, but uh, uh, unwittingly they've concealed from us the fact that this first teach is about evangelism and soul winning and representing Christ and making him known. Literally, it is make disciples of all nations. It's a different word from that which is to be used in verse 20, teaching them. Now, that's different. That is a teaching word, an instructing word. But the first word is better rendered as make disciples. It's quite different. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. All pagans is the original, but all nations is fair enough. All Gentile nations, particularly. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Greek, we won't go into detail, the Greek word translated, which isn't translated, it's just transliterated from the Greek here. Baptize. That's just a version of the Greek word because the translators have hesitated to translate it. It's too controversial. But literally, the Greek word means dip. Dipping them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Now look at the the wording in verse 19. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. They have to be made disciples before you baptize them. They have to be converted. They have to be presented with and persuaded by the saving gospel of Christ, the good news. They must have come to him and repented and trusted him and found him. And then they can be baptized. The one precedes the other. Make disciples of or out of all nations, baptizing them, dipping them. That is the symbol of death and resurrection. That's what baptism was about. The person was plunged into the water to symbolize death to the old life and came up out of the water to symbolize risen to a new life, converted, born again, to live with Christ and to live for him. So it's not only washing that's represented, it's death and resurrection. The scripture elsewhere makes that very clear. So the dipping word is appropriate, baptizing people from all nations who are made disciples, who are converted. Now, I once listened not so long ago to a video from the Westminster Seminary in the United States, which is sound in doctrine, but it's very Presbyterian. And one of their professors gave a short talk on infant baptism. It was on video, and I listened to him. And it began with this text. We must baptize infants 
because the Great Commission says we must baptize. And he read these words out, Go ye therefore, and he had a modern version which translated and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So we have a mandate to baptize. And he didn't seem to notice that he'd read make disciples before he read baptizing them. He left that out. So right from the very beginning, he was uh, making a mistake. He should have noticed. Make disciples first, then baptize them. That's why we call it believer's baptism. Not infant baptism. That's something else. Baptism is just a symbol of what has happened to you. You come to the Lord and you say in your baptism, to all who watch, this has happened to me. I'm dead to the old life and I've risen to a new life. And it's for believers. And then this professor in the Westminster Seminary, I don't want to be critical of that seminary, or it's a sound place but uh, in the United States, but then he went to Acts 2, and he said when the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, uh, he commanded the people to repent and to be baptized, every one of you. And then Peter said, for the promise is to you and to your children. There you are, said this professor. So we baptized the children. But he didn't read on. Even to as many as the Lord shall call. They have to be called and saved in order to be baptized. And a little later it says, then they who received his word were baptized. All the way through the scripture, salvation comes before baptism. And baptism is the sign of what has happened and the pledge to God that you make. So I thought I'd mention those things. It was not my purpose to focus on that this morning. Go ye therefore and first of all make disciples from all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. These words are important. Let me suggest, because this is the original Greek, that we put it this way, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this very same term is translated in that way, into the name. What's the difference between being baptized in the name of God or into the name of God? Well, the difference is easy for all of us to understand. If I do something in the name of God, it means I do it by his authority. If I do something into the name of God, it means I come into the experience that he gives into his power, into his life, into his service. If I am baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's, I'm baptized by his authority. Into the name, I'm baptized into 
an experience of Christ and of the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're very careful with the word in baptism. When we baptize, we say, I baptize you into the name. Why all three members of the Godhead? Because if you're baptized into the name of the Son, he's the Savior. You're baptized into him, a believer in him, in his atoning death, in his salvation. He's purchased it for you. He's given you the new life. If you're baptized into the name of the Father, then you're a member of the divine family, the divine household. You're not like the Father. You're not like God. But you're admitted into the household of God's people, the family of God's people, the role of the citizens of heaven the people whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. So you're baptized into the name of the Father. You're in the family. Into the name of the Son. He's died for you and saved you. You're covered by his atoning blood. Into the name of the Holy Spirit because you're in him. He's come to you. He occupies you. The third person of the Trinity equal with the Father in a mysterious, inexplicable way, resident in you to enliven your conscience, to encourage you, to warn you, to help you. He yearns jealously for you, the scripture says, to keep you on the side of the Lord and to keep you from the evil one. So it's a great thing to be baptized into the name of the Father family. The Son, the atoning death of Christ, covers you. The Holy Spirit, he's with you. That's all of salvation. Every word of it is precious to the believer. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, dipping them, if you like. Doesn't sound so elegant. In the name, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, verse 20, teaching them, instructing them. So there's two sides to this. You preach the gospel. You witness the gospel in daily life. You represent Christ. We do it in word, also by literature, by our lives. We're making disciples. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit who makes disciples. It's not strictly us, we realize that. The commission is given to us, go and make disciples. But the scripture overall teaches us that it's God who does the work. As we witness, we depend upon him to move the heart, to soften the heart, to incline the will, to move the person to believe, to regenerate, illuminate the person so they understand and feel and desire and respond and then to change them. It's the Holy Spirit does it. 
So we witness, we do our part, but we depend upon him and we're prayerful. Every word of witness must be accompanied by prayer or it will be in vain because it's actually the Spirit's work. So yes, I need to make that clear as we proceed, but teaching them to observe comes from the verb to watch, to watch, to observe, like a sentry watches, to watch. But observe is a good translation, it encompasses that, to obey, you could say, but you have to do it by watching. You can't live the Christian life automatically. You can't go through the day without a thought in your head of how you're to live. We observe, we keep in mind the commands of the Lord. We remember our weaknesses and our tendencies and we pray for help and we're watchful comes from to watch, teaching them to observe and obey all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I'm not going to stay with this, but we have to honour all the counsel of God, everything that God says. There's a trend among Bible believers today. It comes from the charismatic movement, but this trend is getting among Uh, conservative Bible believers and it is this oh we don't believe in duties duties, duties, duties of the Christian life do this, do that do something else isn't it all of grace we hear people saying isn't it all of grace you're making this legalistic the Christian must remember this remember that do this, do that avoid this, avoid that No, God looks after us. We don't trouble with that. But this is the great commission of Christ. Teaching them, command of Christ, to watch for and observe all things that I have commanded. Every rule that Christ speaks, not only from his own mouth, but through the mouth of his apostles, inspired to write the rest of the New Testament. Everything is authoritative for us. So yes, there are a great many things to obey. Does it conflict with grace? No, we're saved by grace alone. But having been saved, you can tell a true Christian because he voluntarily wants to obey the small print and to do his utmost and to seek God's help, saved by grace. But then I want to do all the things that Christ has commanded and laid down. And we must get that balance right and resist the foolish trend which is coming in, which stands all the instructions of the New Testament on their head. It's unintelligent, It's unspiritual and unbiblical, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then these words, dear friends, and lo, I am with you always. 
Let's just think about these words. That little two-letter word, low. It's a tremendous word. It's throughout the New Testament. It's particularly prevalent in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. It literally means look. But it's a flexible word. It means more than that. It means look in the sense of mark this. Be aware of this. If you want, wanted to say in Jacobean times, remember what I told you. Remember this. You might say, lo. And you'd use the word watch, lo, to mean mark, remember. And so there are some versions that translate this promise of Christ in that way. And they say, and remember, I am with you. But in this place, that's wrong. Sometimes it's the right thing to do. Sometimes the context is right for that. It's obviously used in that sense, remember. But here, it's obviously used in a more literal sense. Lo, look, look at this, look. It's obvious this is what's meant here, because look at the words. I am with you. And in the Greek, the I is emphatic, it's emphasized. You can't indicate that in English, but in the Greek, the I, all the emphasis is on that word. Look, I am with you. You see the point? This is the risen Lord. He's been crucified, slain, certified dead, taken down, anointed by Joseph of Arimathea and whoever assisted him. Nicodemus also, intelligent leaders of the people, wrapped the body in bandages, as it were, laced with perfume known to be dead, observed to be dead, laid in Joseph's new tomb, designed and intended for him in a garden of tombs. A stone seals the tomb. A Roman guard of at least 12 men, that was the rule of the Romans at the time, the minimum detail, guard that tomb. Now here he is risen from the dead and the wounds are visible the wounds that he suffered on Calvary's cross the spear piercing and so on they must have been deep because when he appeared to the disciples Thomas put his hand in the womb yet healed and restored he appeared twelve times over 40 days, and once to above 500 people. Here he is, the risen Lord, standing before the disciples. Don't you see the word low here means literally that, see, look, look at me. Yes, he's our Lord who was crucified, risen from the dead. He's God. He's triumphed. I am with you. 
You see how it comes together? Look at the risen Lord. That's not our privilege, but it was theirs. I am with you. What more can you have? The Lord of life, with power over death, risen from the dead. I am with you. If a prime minister, any prime minister or sovereign, were to write to you or say to you, I am with you, you'd say, marvellous. But I read the news every day and he's failed in some respect. Or he's missed a promise. I'm not talking politics. Oh, only human. Even the best of them. And this hasn't worked out and that hasn't worked out. And he's but a man. And he'd be miles away from me when I'm in difficulty. This is the risen Lord of life. Look, look at me. I am with you. To the lowliest Christian, the promise comes. So the low is the right way of expressing this. Not remember, I am with you. Look, I am with you. The one who has all power. I am with you always. In every age, in every situation, who is he with? I'm sorry about this, but I must make this point. If I am living for myself and my life, a bigger this, a better that, a better experience of something in this world, more possessions, just a happier life, just a better life, always thinking about my earthly lot and situation and performance or appearance or whatever. If that's my life, this world, the here and now, the material realm, this promise isn't for me. Lo, I am with you. I may be a Christian, but if I go through a period where I'm just preoccupied with myself, living for me, this is a promise to those who go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Whether it's a preacher like the Apostle Paul, or whether it's a church member like any one of us who is committed to going in a corporate sense. I'm one with my fellow believers, stewarding, praying, speaking when I can, supporting the work, doing all I can to take part in it, ferrying the children to Sunday school, teaching class, doing this and that, thinking, eating, living for the Lord, thinking of these things first and foremost, he, my saviour, to whom I owe everything, is my priority. Then the promise applies to me. See, I am with you always. So I must make that clear. It's a promise 
with a condition. So how do I live? Live for him, friends. We've got to work, we've got to earn our bread, we've got to keep home and family together and clothed and looked after and happy and educated. We've got to do all these things. But if we're true believers and we've come to Christ and we walk with him, he's ever uppermost in our mind and in our hearts, we're for him first and foremost. That's our calling. He loved me, we say, and gave himself for me. And then the promise, I am with you always, even unto the end, the end of the world. You know, for me, that makes the promise particularly special because at the end of the world, there are hard times. I don't think we're quite there yet. It could be any time. It looks as though we're heading there when all the signs predicted in the scripture are coming to pass. The gospel has been preached virtually throughout the world. The opposition to the Lord and the hate is rising to such a crescendo. The videos that are made against Christ and the faith and belief, the hostility in the public places. Now the laws are being changed more and more to criminalize Christians for standing for the moral standards of the Bible. Surely we're very near the end. But in the scriptures, the very end, these things rise to a climax. In the book of Revelation, the two witnesses representing the witness of the church are felled and they die and they lie down and they're trampled on and repudiated and scorned utterly. Things are going to be very hard at the very end. So it's significant that Christ says, See, look, I am with you, even to the very end. And I think to myself, if Christ can uphold his people, even in the last tumult of opposition, Satan's little season, when he finds his final instrument to attack the faith and the word of God, if Christ can uphold his people and be very present with them and make himself known to them and comfort them and assure them in those terrible last moments before he comes again, he can surely do it now, even as we approach those days. Don't you want your heart to be assured? Don't you want to prove him day by day by committing everything to him? Don't you want to see him near you with the eye of faith, not literally, but with the eye of faith? Be conscious of his nearness by the power of the Spirit. Don't you want to remember every morning, every afternoon, I'm a child of God, bought by the blood of Christ, and the Spirit is within me. My divine guardian is within. Don't you want, by faith, to know 
the nearness of Christ in that sense, by faith? Of course you do. Make him your priority. Live for him. Think of him in all things. Pray often, even unto the end of the world. Dear friends, I read two scriptures to close from Philippians chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12. Not that I speak in respect of want, says the Apostle Paul, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, do we? And I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And hear the wonderful words, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. When I look back across life, there are so many failures. There are so many low periods. But there are also constantly those periods when I've called upon the Lord and proved him and known him and he's blessed and seen me through. And I'm sure it's the same for every Christian as the faith goes on, on the days you trust him. I found the Lord something like uh, 66 years ago. And this has been my experience and the experience of every aging believer that I know. But in spite of our failings, he proves himself. Let's just turn to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And what a passage this is to conclude with. Verses 7 to 8. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, will allow it, permit it, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. He will be with his people who trust him and look to him, who represent him and love the gospel all the way to the very end. I wished, I wanted to say so much more, but our time is out, dear friends, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world.